0: From RTE Radio, I'm Neil Sheridan This is Playback Daily.
1: When I got older and still home and singing on TV, if I wanted, you know, a little extra push-up, and you know, to make my boobs go together a little more, all that, well, mom will say you better not tell your daddy.
2: We have two very young boys, and um, our life is a bit mad. So my kitchen is has to be a workhorse for many, many different reasons.
3: His opinion is footballers, or what do you say? Footballers for hurlers with bad eyesight. So that's how they that's how they view that's football. In, fair, no. in Tipperary, they're more of a hurling
0: county. Yeah. Coming up on this edition of Playback Daily, Dolly Parton on Live Line. Yes, Dolly Parton on Live Line. Donald Skehan has a new kitchen and a new cookbook and the endlessly fascinating lives of cows. That's all on the way over the next hour of the radio catch-up show that will always love you. On this morning's 9 o'clock show, Oliver Callan began his musings on things that are happening around the zeitgeist within the fabled walls of Dublin Zoo.
4: Dublin Zoo are telling us that it's been a record-breaking year, 2022 that is. 1.3 million people went through the gates of the Phoenix Park attraction there. Uh, That's up on... Uh, the figures are third the year before, though the mostly was in lockdown. But it's it's their biggest ever. It's their highest annual total of visitors since it opened to the public in 1831. So this is big news, as uh, it's in the annual report for the Zoological Society of Ireland, which uh, is responsible for both Dublin Zoo and Photo Wildlife Park in Cork. And um, this is in the Irish Mirror, by the way. So Photo uh, Wildlife, how did it do? Well, they had a record number of visitors during the first quarter of 2022, but Bad weather and the tourist accommodation issues for the rest of the year led to a decline. So they actually had uh, they well at four hundred fifteen thousand people uh, visited uh, Fota in Cork in twenty twenty two, which was actually down on the previous year. Um, and that's they, they're blaming the the problems with accommodation and the fact that hotels uh, are filled up with um, with immigration with the war. Uh, on Ukraine and all of the issues around that, hotel stays were down 21% in in that period. So that's what's going on in the zoos out there. There's a nostalgic attraction, isn't there, to the zoos that you want to bring your your children to a thing you enjoyed. And they have much improved since uh, we enjoyed them as children.
0: From the attractive animals to the fake books. Or are they?
4: Now, Marsh's Library, which is in uh, just, it's next to St. Patrick's Cathedral in Dublin, and it is the first public library in Ireland, uh, going way back to 1707. Uh, they're on social media and they raise this question uh, are the books real? Where is this question? They're saying it's coming up more and more often on tours of Marshall's Library. Actual, physical, in-person tours, they say, when people are standing two feet away from the books in this very, very old library. And they're questioning, this is in their official channels, Um, it's as if some people are so used to living online that they can't quite grasp or understand physical reality. Now, this has sparked kind of conversations And they wanted to point out, look, they're not uh, mocking visitors. They're actually just wondering why uh, at a point in history people are coming to an ancient library uh, assuming that the book's on the shelves aren't real and other libraries got in touch uh, Whittaker Library that's in England I presume uh, said they've they've probably been in too many cafes and pubs with rows of old looking books that are there for display these are the kind of spines of old books that are stuck to the walls or indeed just wallpaper and some people say maybe they've just walked too, through too many Ikea showrooms with all their fake books and uh, so other people are saying they might also understand the fragility and the value of very old books when I worked at the museum this is Valerie Clark guests would ask if the paintings were real because they assumed the real ones had to be protected somewhere safer and they just had copies on display so maybe that's what's behind it um, but um, maybe it is also the fact that people can't quite grasp reality because they're stuck in in their avatar world their um, the metaverse remember that thing it's kind of, it hasn't really taken off has it no one's having big meetings in the metaverse anymore
0: yes 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 you say but what about Time Out's coolest neighbourhoods in the world list Fretty not Oliver's got you covered
4: Time Out magazine, which is a global magazine for tourists all around the world. And this is a CNN reporting on Time Out magazine. So I'm putting it in context the international coverage that a particular neighbourhood in Dublin is getting this morning because they've named the coolest neighbourhoods in the world. And they only pick out 12 around the world. Coolest neighbourhoods in the world. So places like um, Colombia's bustling city of Medellin, which would be familiar to viewers of Narcos. <laughs> we wondering, well, it was set in the, ni- in the 80s, wasn't it? So maybe, well, we now know, of course, Medellin in Colombia is a very cool place. And uh, where else have they picked here as well? Um, they're basically saying that the gentrification... Uh, hasn't affected them. So I thought gentrification was one of the reasons that we're going to call them cool. But no, waterfront places like Havnen in Copenhagen and uh, in Asia, Hong Kong's buzzy Shuang Yang neighbourhood is getting the nod. But w- what is the most, the coolest neighbourhood, the highest ranking cool neighbourhood in Europe, Smithfield in Dublin is the coolest place. And you, we, we skip to what is the criteria? Quickly tell us what is the criteria for all of this. Well, the world's coolest neighbourhoods are places with big personalities. Each area's diversity, yes, that's important. It has to be reflected in its food, culture and festivals. Community is key. Locals who have banded together to rebuild their neighbourhood after... um after issues like demolition or, or dereliction, and creating spaces where people come together and have fun, whether it's an all-nighter or a nighttime bike ride, neighbourhoods are where the city comes uh, to, out to play. And they're talking about particularly places where uh, you've got some of the old world still hanging around, place the kind of uh, uh, you know the down-to-earth visitors, along with the gentrification, all working together. The long-standing stalwarts coexisting alongside exciting new ventures, and for that reason, they have uh, Smithfield because it has the cobblestone historic pub, which is the home of. Tran- and you had all the musicians marching in protest when it was uh, threatened with being knocked down two years ago. And new businesses like Third Space and there's lots of, there's a thriving kind of digital uh, media business happening down the Smithfield. You've got uh, Brown Bag Films, which makes animations for years and years. Um, the Generator, which is a hostel. Uh, uh, the Lighthouse Cinema, of course, which is art house and mainstream cinema as well, Um What else have we got down? Brandbeck Films, yeah. Um, The TU, Grange Gorman. Yes, there's lots of youth around Smithfield because the Technological University and you've got Bolton Street as well down the road. They all flock up to Smithfield because it has boujum, which is um, kind of um, cheap eats, Mexican food. The Bow Street Academy, which um, trains screen actors, is there as well. So there's a lot going for Smithfield because initially you're thinking, no, we have a negative view of of the city centre and you think of some of the hairy Lewis stops. At times They can be They can be hairy Let's face it Uh, But Smithfield is getting Very high ratings um, Across the place as well Some old and new stuff What's kind of new things Down in In Smithfield By the way The photograph they've used In Time Out And uh, magazine Is a picture from A festival going on Inside the Lighthouse Cinema Which is a a gorgeous cinema Very trendy Okay But um, they have Somewhat defined What they mean by Coolest
0: neighbourhoods So now you know If you don't live in Smithfield you're not cool. And that's official. So off we go. Us non-cool people to think about what we've made of our lives. And as we go, we'll cast off the musings on coolness and other things from this morning's nine o'clock show. Mm -hmm. The clocks will be going back soon and this will mean darker mornings and evenings. Claire Byrne shared the stark statistic from the Garthi and the Road Safety Authority that in dark clothing a pedestrian or a cyclist is only likely to be visible 30 meters away in low beam headlights. But if they're wearing something reflective, they become visible from up to 150 meters, the length of a football pitch. So to discuss road safety on shorter days Claire was joined this morning by Sheila O'Brien Community Bike Leader in County Cavan Janet Horner, Green Party Councillor with Dublin City Council and Geraldine Herbert, Motoring Editor at the Sunday Independent The discussion started with Sheila O'Brien
5: Do you think that people find this adjustment to darker mornings and evenings difficult and is that your experience?
6: Uh, good morning Claire. Um I do actually and my experience would be Living in a rural area, I would find and have experienced of recent cyclists with literally no lights in black at six fifteen a.m. in the morning, and nearly taking, you know, nearly knocking someone down myself while I was driving to the gym.
5: Yeah, and I think a lot of people who are on the roads at that time of the morning, or indeed later on in the evening when it's dark as well, will notice that it is particularly dangerous when pedestrians and cyclists have. Absolutely no reflective gear on.
6: And Claire, I think that, and like, we're not obliged to wear high vis clothing in Ireland. Believe it or not, reflective clothing is considered an accessory. So you don't have to do, you do these things. You do have to have, you know, a, a light in the front that's white and a red light in the back. And you have to have it on what they call lighting hours, which is a half hour after sunset and a half hour before sunrise. But I don't understand why people aren't getting it. It's common sense, but unfortunately, there's not a lot of people out there using it.
5: But, Sheila, the change in the light, it sort of creeps up on you a little bit. You know, you were fine a couple of weeks ago going out with no reflective gear on. Now you're not.
6: You're not. But, I mean, we do know know when it's dark. I mean, surely if you can't see in front of you correctly, you must realize a driver is not able to see you. But
5: mm-hmm, like, right. you
6: really should have um, a 500 lumens light on your, at minimum, on your bike, which is going to let you see about 100 metres. Now, where I am, on rural roads, it really should be a 1,000 lumens, which is just a measurement of what the light will see, which would be 200 metres.
5: Okay, and you're You're saying... You need that to protect yourself. You're saying it's the responsibility of the cyclist and the pedestrian to look after themselves in that regard, are you?
6: No I wouldn't really say that. What I say is we, we need to really be accountable for each other. So yes drivers need to be a bit more aware but if you're going out like you you should be wearing a reflective coat a reflect or you know on your bike reflective pedals lights, reflectors on your spokes of your tyre. Because at the end of the day, it's your life. You can't let other people be responsible for you.
5: Mm-hmm. Well, Janet, I'll bring you in here because you're someone who's very used to walking and cycling, but probably in a different setting to Sheila in that you're in the city. That poses its own challenges, does it?
7: Yeah, I mean, I guess I would take a slightly different perspective on it. Like, I'm I'm living in the north inner city in Dublin. There is every variety of life on the streets around us. There's children going to and from school. There's a lot of people who might be intoxicated using the streets. There's a lot of people commuting, there's people cycling, there's people using scooters, there's people driving. The streets are busy. And I guess one of the differences from rural areas is that we have footpaths and we have street lighting everywhere. Um, So I, in, in my opinion, we are we are really letting down our pedestrians and people walking and moving around the city if we are asking them to take responsibility for their safety when they are just living their lives, most of the time very responsibly. Um, but we are telling them that they have to, to protect themselves and they have to put on their armour before they go out and use the streets in the day uh, of a high-vis vest and a yeah. helmet if they want to, to cycle down the road before they can be... We will keep them safe. I think mm-hmm. the city should be doing more. We should have better quality footpaths, um, because I can see all around me. I know elderly people in my area here will often say that they end up walking in the carriageway because the footpaths are so broken up that there's a trip, they have a trip hazard there. Whereas at least the roadways are smooth that's not acceptable because that's not appropriate for people to say you should just have to stay in your home after dark because it's too dangerous, the footpaths are broken up. So you're saying
5: more lighting and safer footpaths, but I mean, I'm somebody who walks and who cycles and who drives and I've noticed driving in the last couple of days when it's become particularly dark that there are people running across the N11 in black clothes and it is absolutely petrifying as a driver when that happens.
7: Yeah and look I mean everybody there is a responsibility that everybody has to act with some common sense but we also exactly. I think like we in in my area again we've seen four um four fatalities on the roads in the last year they've all been pedestrians and I can I know from a lot of the reports around here people have been completely not at fault themselves in in what happened there there've been many many more serious injuries that have happened The the individuals who were walking around the streets at the time were not at fault. It was the fault of somebody who was driving recklessly, behaving without paying due attention. Or, again, as you say, maybe there is situations where the infrastructure is not there. They simply couldn't see them and there wasn't good lighting. Um, But that is things that, as a city, as a council, we should be we should be addressing and we should be looking at where we have patterns of serious injuries. Unfortunately, at the moment, we don't have that data. The RSA don't release the data to us as a local authority to tell us where serious injuries are happening. So we can't respond properly at the moment to to put in place the kind of changes in infrastructure
6: we need to do.
5: Okay. What the RSA
6: are doing oh, at the clear. moment is they're handing out high-vis
7: vests. Yes, Sheila, you want to come and in
1: there and then say I'll, say so. I'll come no, to Gerardy. That's what this
6: woman's saying. She's kind of contradicting herself. So if there is issues with lighting and things like that, shouldn't we just take it upon ourselves to mind ourselves, to wear a high-vis so people can see us? The thing is, everybody's blaming everybody else, but nobody's taking any accountability for themselves. Janet?
7: I mean, I'm a councillor, so I sit on Dublin City Council, so I am trying to take responsibility for what the council does and how the council responds. And I think that everybody, we as citizens, deserve a safe environment to move around in and that as best as possible. I'm not disagreeing with that what I'm disagreeing about.
6: No, I'm not disagreeing with that part. That makes sense. But you're saying, sure, why should they bother armoring up to put a high vis on? It takes two seconds to put a high vis on.
5: What's the big deal? Well, let's bring in Geraldine here, uh, Geraldine Herbert, motoring journalist. So I have a lot of people getting in touch on text saying that they are drivers and they cannot see people who are on scooters, who are on bikes, who are pedestrians. And then some saying that drivers have driving lights on, which means they have no lights on the back of their car. So everybody, as Sheila says, seems to be blaming everybody else.
8: Yeah look I think if you don't drive you don't have an understanding of how little you can actually see behind the wheel at night and it is you you know there is an adjustment process and exactly what you were saying Claire, about particularly at this time of the year when the clocks go back we seem to adjust better but at this time of the year we tend to get caught out I think regardless of whether you're in urban areas or rural areas the onus is on everybody to be visible and we do know that studies show that reflective accessories particularly attached to limbs um, do really make a difference because humans seem to be particularly sensitive to bio motion and it's one thing that drivers will see agree with Janice that we need to make our, our streets and our cities safer but in rural areas definitely visibility is a big thing but then the onus is on drivers if their lights are not working they're not going to pick up this reflective, mm-hmm. these reflective lights and the issue about daytime running lights is these are on most cars a lot of drivers rely on them during the day but they're completely useless at night, they don't light the rear of your car so really what drivers need to do at this time of the year is anticipate the darkness, don't wait for it and turn your lights on, it really is important and also while it sounds blindingly obvious a lot of people have been driving in daylight they're not aware of blown head bulbs or headlamps not working so really the onus is on the driver to be as lit up as well as the pedestrian and the cyclist
0: that's Geraldine Herbert motoring editor with the Sunday Independent who along with Sheila O'Brien community bike ride leader in County Cavan and Green Party councillor Janet Horner were talking to Clare Byrne this morning about safety on the roads as the days get shorter So, who's called into LiveLine today? Somebody's neighbour left their bins out again? The county council won't cut the grass on the verge beside the
9: supermarket car park because of the bees? Come on, Katie, don't leave us hanging. Never in my wildest dreams did I imagine I would ever get to say, good afternoon, Dolly Parton. What?
1: (laughs) Well, good afternoon to you. I've got a lot of things to talk about and I guess we can just catch up on several things and people we know.
9: Absolutely. I don't know if you heard about Dolly Day?
1: No, what's that?
9: OK, so in my hometown, which is Listowel and County Kerry, uh, they organised Dolly Day this summer, which was broke, smashed actually, the record for the biggest gathering of people dressed as you ever in the history of the world. Oh.
1: About that, was that the Guinness Book of World Records thing that they yes. were trying to set? Oh, yeah, I heard about that. Yeah, I even saw some of the pictures uh, and some of the uh, all the the different wigs and. Hairdo, so they should have had, We should have had a picture in my book with them, shouldn't we?
9: We should have had a picture in your book. And I was thinking that book. And I, let me tell you, that was my cousin Cora that organised uh, that Dolly Day, and it was a massive, massive uh, success in Kerry. There is seventy-five thousand euro. But I was thinking your book, which is let's tell people behind the seams, my life in rhinestones, which is all about all your outfits, all those fabulous, fabulous rhinestone outfits, the wigs. That would have been such a help for all those people trying to dress up as you last summer.
1: Well, it would have been. But may I just take a moment to say thank you to all the gals that uh, dressed up like me. I was proud of all of you. You made me proud.
9: Can I talk a bit about your style then? Because um, the book is such a lovely production. There's some fabulous photographs there going right through the years. And I was really surprised to learn like you've been preserving your outfits right from way back to the early days.
1: Yes, that's true. My best friend, Judy Ogle, who's been my best friend since we were in grammar school, uh, she travelled with me. After we got out of school, she came to work with me. And so we travelled all over the world together all all the years that I've been in the business. And she just started collecting everything, keeping everything and putting everything in storage, saying, someday you're going to have a museum. And so sure enough, I did have a museum at Dollywood. And then of course, we had so many more things in storage and things that she had kept. And so we just started uh, putting it together. Somebody said, well, you had your song teller book, which was all about your songwriting and telling stories about your emotions and where you were, and why you wrote it. Well, why don't you do one about your clothes? Because that chronicles your life in costumes like that one does in songs. And so that's where the idea came from. And we started pulling all these great pictures and all these wonderful uh, times, all these crazy wigs and all the crazy things I've worn through the years. The, I kind of say the, the good, the bad, and the ugly, but it was all in there and all part of my, my journey in my life as a, as a country music star. And I had uh, one of the things I love about the book, it gives me an opportunity to kind of uh, put out front the, the people that have done the clothes, or if they're passed on, a lot of them have, uh, to talk to their families and how they thought about it and how, what they remember about the people that made the clothes. So it's really an emotional book. It really touches on a lot of great subjects and just interviewing all these people. My niece, Rebecca Seaver, who curated the whole thing, she put the all the pictures, took the pictures and did all the putting that together. She had a lot of help, of course. And then uh, a little gal named Holly George Warner she really took over and filled in with the writing with me, making sure that we had all that good. So I'm just proud to feature them as well as all these wonderful uh, designers that are in the book.
9: Yeah, and I know you say you had 200 wigs at one stage.
1: (laughs) Oh, I'm sure I must have that many. I always just joke and say I wear one almost every day, so I must have at least 365. I don't know, because we change them out, of course, and I donate. Uh, wigs and clothes to different um, museums or for different charities to, to sell. So I have lots of clothes that are not in this book. I have warehouses full of costumes and things that I've uh, kept through the years. And so who knows, we may have a volume two. Uh, you don't know for sure until you see how well one does. But honestly, uh, I really think this book is very good. It's it's very fun to to read. It's very fun to look at. Just seeing how all the crazy ways I've looked since I started at 10 years old and uh, back home in Sevier County, Tennessee, my hometown, singing on local radio and television and at the fair fairgrounds when the fair came to town. And so it, I talk about all those things and the journeys that I've, that I've taken with other people as well.
9: And the, your style, where it came from, because it wasn't, it wasn't how people were dressing where you, were, where you were growing up?
1: No, it wasn't. <laughs> but uh, I was always one of those kids that wanted to be different, and I was different. And so I was kind of show busy in my head, in my mind. I wanted to be more. I wanted to be colorful. I wanted to stand out. I wanted to be noticed, I guess. <laughs> it's the best I could figure. Uh, but it just seemed natural for me to want to wear the kind of clothes I wore, even when I got in trouble for wearing some of them with my preacher grandpa or even mama, sometimes would think, now that's a little much. And my daddy would just say, that's too much. Go take it off. But I just, as soon as he went to work, I'd go put it back on. So I wasn't doing it to be mean. I was just doing it because that's what I felt I needed to do. So I guess that's what true fashion is, is just wearing what you feel good in and what you're comfortable in.
9: And I loved, we've been talking a lot on uh, this show this week and the last couple of weeks about really strong women, amazing women. And I just loved uh, reading about your mother again.
1: Oh, my mom was great. My mom had a great personality. She was a singer too, but mama had a very open mind and she had a very open heart, very much like, like I do. I inherited a lot of that from her, but mama understood me. She got it. She knew that she could trust me somehow. And she would help me kind of do little little things now and then when in the clothes that I was wearing when I started when I got older and still home and singing on TV. If I wanted, you know, a little extra push up and you know, to make my boobs go together a little more, all that. Well Mom would say, You better not tell your daddy, you know. I, I helped with that. I said, I don't tell my daddy nothing. You if you tell him, you tell him, I'm not telling. But anyway, she was she just always understood and she would never go over the top, but she, she would help me a little bit if I needed her to sew something for me that wasn't really something I could find somewhere else. She'd help me because she could so good.
9: And of course, famously, one of the most famous songs you've ever recorded and it's been recorded by so many others as well, The Coat of Many Colours. That's still yeah. one of your favourite songs, isn't
1: it? I think it is my favourite song. I, I get asked that question so many times and I keep thinking maybe I'll have a new one come along at some point to say, well, The Coat of Many Colours used to be my favourite song. But no, that one stays in there only because it, it marked a... A period in time that was very deep to me memorable to say the least and it it changed me in a way uh, it made me uh, grow up kind of in a way to know that uh, everybody's not Uh, the same as kids you can't fault kids kids always make fun of each other and all that but I was very sensitive and I took it you know yeah just
9: remind us Dolly if if people still don't know the story and I mean and just remind people as well your mother had 12 children before she was by the time she was 35 so there wasn't a lot of fancy anything around the house but this coat came out of that
1: yeah, so mama used to make quilts and people used to give her lots of colored scraps to make quilt tops and all. But she made me a little coat of many colors at a time when I needed it. And she told me the story about Joseph from the Bible. And of course it was made out of so many different colors and I wore it to school, so proud of it because I thought I looked like Joseph in the Bible. <laughs> but the kids all laughed and ripped my coat up and all that and I was just really hurt about it. So I went home uh, crying to mom about it and telling them, they said we was poor and my coat was just rags. And Mama said, hey, look, we are not poor. There's a lot of poor people in this world. Now, we might not have store-bought stuff, but we might not have money, but we're rich in love and we're rich in kindness. And we're rich in a lot of stuff that a lot of people don't have. So I don't want you to ever say we're poor because we're not. So anyway, it's just the little line in the book, just because we had no money, I was rich as I could be in that coat of many colours that mama made for me. So it's a lesson in bullying, other kids making fun of me. It's a lesson in good mamas, parents, family. And it's a, it's a book about just strength and, and being different. And it yeah. you know, just diversity.
0: <laughs> there was only the legend that is Dolly Parton talking to Katie Hannon on this afternoon's Live Line. Yes, you heard those words correctly. You should really fire the RTU radio up straight away and listen to the full chat. Go on, go ahead. I'll wait. Oliver Callan was joined in studio this morning by Chef Donald Skihan, whose new cookbook, Home Kitchen, has just been published.
2: I think I've been uh, struggling to find the home kitchen for a long time. We've been travelling for the last couple of years, and we moved home in 2020. And so we've moved all around, and finally we have just bought a house that is our own. And finding that home kitchen element is a is a very important uh, thing for us. So yeah, absolutely.
4: Yeah, and have you found the perfect kitchen? I, I gather you're still searching.
2: Uh, we're working on it. We have a. We've just bought, and we've done a little bit of. We haven't done any major building work. We've just done a, a little renovation to a kitchen. So uh, yeah, it's 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 fantastic and do you know what um having Traveled and worked in lots of different kitchens over the years. It's it's one of those things where you know what you want when it comes down to it, and you know how your kitchen works. And we have two very young boys, and um, our life is a bit mad. So my kitchen is has to be a workhorse for many many different reasons. Okay, so we're w- watching your videos. It's not always in your actual home. You, uh, know, you
4: know, Irish people watching it. I know, is that yeah, his house. Is that
2: is Well, uh, <laughs> the worst thing was when we had uh, we I used to do the TV show when I come back from uh, when we were living in Los Angeles, and we used to do it in an industrial estate in Glenageary. And we used Beautiful. to use the back garden window was actually a TV. I'm ruining all the secrets now, but it was a TV where we'd recorded into someone's back garden, so you could see the leaves moving. But it was actually looking at a television <laughs> through a window. <laughs> wow! Uh, there are people in Clennagery going. There are no industrial estates around
4: here. Yes, there <laughs> is. I, I, we have a studio. <laughs> in actually, one. Radio One uh, listeners from um, it's, it's called Home Kitchen. The book, so it is all about home. It's exactly that. And yeah. uh, yourself and your your lovely wife. Yes, she's yes. Swedish.
2: She is Swedish. Yes, from Gothenburg.
4: Sophie. Sophie. Yeah, Sophie. Sophie, yeah. I beg your pardon. Uh, that is definitely the Irish um, she's probably had that all the time. Confused. Well
2: they all in Sweden they all call her Sophie. So I've I've called her Sophie oh, over the years and Sophie. Train. Sophie. That sounds actually a nicer way of putting it. Is it? <laughs> um, together, you, your first home together
4: was, was a rental.
2: Yes, yes. I, I'm,
4: most people of your generation,
2: you're, you're mid, late 30s? Uh, 37 now, yeah.
4: Are, are are in rentals, aren't they, essentially? Yeah, absolutely. A, yeah, I mean, did you find you could make a home a home in a rental? Because we, we sort of feel we, that you can't.
2: Yeah, well, I think it's a hard one. I mean, we, we've we been renting since we were 20, I think. And, you know, we've obviously just bought uh, this year, or last year. No, this year, sorry. Um, but yes, rentals <laughs> tend to to be one of those sorts of things where you kind of you always feel like it's not necessarily yours and to make your make it feel like home you do all the things that you can but ultimately it's like peel and stick pvc uh tiles and things like that to
5: kind of (laughs) but
2: we were always quite you know wanting to make the house a home and you know we would do things that you know we'd buy I I was a big fan of um buying things at like auctions and little pieces of furniture and things like that and um so we'd always try and attempt to make it at home but ultimately you know it's been amazing over the last what is it like nearly 15 years of renting that you kind of there's a moment where you're just going oh my gosh I just want something that isn't going to change or isn't going to be pulled out and the last three or four years we had um when we came home, rental properties that like one was sold out from underneath us. The one one was the owners came back. So that feeling of just kind of constantly uh, being on the move was was something we were. So kind you of, only came back in 2020, is that what yeah. you, uh, so in a short space of time this is three years you've been in and out of houses being sold under you. Yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I can tell you with two young kids uh, and a lot of moving vans and boxes uh, we were very keen to just get one space that was our own and that, and even, you know, the recipes in the, the book are all about that. It's just like we want the traditions of being in the one spot and, and coming back to and it. And it's you know. designed then for even pokey kitchens. Even pokey ki- Well, my mum grew, uh, I grew up with a galley kitchen and my mum uh, operated Christmas dinners and feasts and all sorts out of a tiny little galley kitchen so she was the a big proponent of it's not about what you have it's what you how you use it i yeah. think <laughs> I think, is that how that no, there's saying very clever, there's a very, clever. There's a very, saying there's right a very clever saying there but neither of us will come up <laughs> with
4: that. <laughs> and actually there's a lovely story about the, the table you had from all those rentals right up to the present days. Yes,
2: there? yes. So the current kitchen table that our, our boys are sitting eating their dinner at was one that when we first moved into we had a lovely little cottage in, uh, in Hoth Village and um, we actually randomly had a sliding doors moment there. I know the lady um, who's, who's bought the house that we used to live in and so we went back and had dinner uh, lunch with them and um, oh, Oh, right. It was amazing cuz we were there and they have young kids as well um and it was just a strange moment but it was the same kitchen table that was in that house that is now sitting at in our kitchen. And you at the you were
4: able to go back to one of your old rentals and not be traumatized. Yes,
2: <laughs> yes. I told Emily who is the owner of the house that I still have dreams of going back into the house and <laughs> and breaking in so it was nice to be invited rather than rather this time.
4: And just to finish up because home because it's a home it's important because you find when you bought your house Um, there was a bit of an ordeal was there There it was like every house on sale yeah I think everyone goes desirable
2: yeah it was it was sought after and actually I mean the thing that uh, turned it for us was we were kind of being outbid and outbid and outbid and um, there was a point where everyone has a get out point where you can't go further and it was at that stage where I knew we wanted it and I knew we we had to push for it and the last thing I had in my arsenal of (laughs) of things to be able to throw was a personal letter and so not only did I write a personal letter but I edited a video of, of of the, us in the area right, and, you know, serious. so I was like, I threw everything and I knew just, you know yourself, if you fall in love with a place, if you throw everything at it, if even if you lose it, at least, you know, you've come away from it having tried. And so that was really, uh, and I stalked that place. My God, I was down looking at it every yeah. single day. And I think you have to kind of get to that place to fall in love really and, and to find it being the one, you know. But that kind of very personal campaign worked. It did, yeah. I'm amazed that worked. Well, I, do you know what? I, I've heard great sto- Since telling that story, I've heard so many people saying the personal letter. It's it's l- nice to know that people still have a heart out there. <laughs> and you can beat out a property developer if you send yeah, in a personal the letter. price is usually <laughs> the thing. Uh, but I'm delighted for you that that worked out. Sad for the others. Yes, well, <laughs> well, it was a property cause... developer, so I, I'm happy that we got it. <laughs> oh,
4: right, okay, well, you beat, okay, you beat those out. Uh, very good. Um, I was just thinking um, that you have been famous for the want of, a, it's an ugly word for all, for, uh, for a long time. Do you, do, when roughly did you come uh, like to our conscious now, public
2: consciousness, because you were a young fella. Yeah. This was one of your big telly shows way, way back. Well, I, the Kitchen Hero was the first show um, and that started in, I think it was 2010, 2011. Oh, really? And okay. that, that started things on, on RT and I've had basically a show on, on RT almost every year and um, it's been it's been a, an amazing journey because I, I think you know I wasn't grey when I started this I was <laughs> a young pup and I was, then, then the Just For Men kind of era came where I had to keep the the youthful look Oh sorry uh, did you do a Just For Men Oh yeah I was just I, well I actually started going grey quite young I started going grey when I was about 22 and so really? uh, there was a little bit of Just For Men going on and yep. then I remember my granny before she passed away she said to my mum he really needs to stop at the old just for men it's not working for him and so I think that was the catalyst to kind of go. okay when your granny's telling you you need to stop you need to
0: stop Well who are we to argue with Granny Skihan that's Chef Donal Skihan talking about his new cookbook Home Kitchen with Oliver Callan this morning On this afternoon's Ray Darcy show Irish actor Richard Flood joined Ray in studio to talk about his new crime drama The
10: Gone so your character is Theo... Richter. Richter, but everyone calls him Richter. Richter, yeah. He, yeah. he goes by his last name for some reason. I think it makes him seem tougher. <laughs> He's a misunderstood Dublin cop. He is, yeah. He's got some <laughs> demons in there that, that I can't say too much about, but they things get revealed throughout the series. You understand why he is the way he is. Yeah. Uh, and he travels to New
11: Zealand to investigate two Irish tourists, not, not tourists, they're working over there. Yeah,
10: yeah, he has a sort of a historical relationship with the judge played by Michelle Fairley. they worked together before and he's the only one she trusts when her daughter goes missing. So um, she calls him up and asks him to come over to help with the investigation. Yeah. And he's planning to retire, but he goes for one last job. Oh, the famous
11: last job! <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Step away from the last uh, job. I know. I Never know. ends well. Exactly.
10: Exactly. Yeah, so that's
11: so, all in there. So it's it's you described it as a one horse town in New Zealand, uh, Te Aroha. Yeah, that's where all the filming was done.
10: We did a lot of it there. We we uh, shot for a number of weeks in in Auckland, but the the small town is really kind of the heart and soul of the story, where mm. a lot of it takes place. And, uh, and there's a huge mountain there, Maunga, as they call it. Uh, and that's it. Dominates it, everything, yeah, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, and that's pivotal to the story. But we climbed it. I climbed it one of the days as yeah. well. Not an easy climb, but I got up there eventually.
11: Yeah, and 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 it, it's it's sort of. It haunts the whole thing.
10: Yeah, yeah. You know the the mountain in, in Maori culture is very central to their culture. They, when they when Maori people are telling you where they're from, they always reference the mountain that they're from, and it plays a big part in our story as well. Huh. So it's very interesting.
11: Well, the gone we can't go too much into it because it'll be spoiler alert. Yeah, there you city. Go. So the gone starts on Sunday night uh, on RT One. Yeah. Highly recommended from here. And um, so you're Dublin born. I am, yeah. yeah,
10: yeah. Born in Bredge, yeah,
11: yeah. From Rathfarnham. Uh, and where did you do your, your, your acting training?
10: Uh, well, I actually went to the UK to do, to do drama school, yeah. I went to the Oxford School of Drama for three years after uh, a very short year in UCD. <laughs> what did you <laughs> attempt to study there? English Philosophy and Psychology, oh, otherwise you know. known as arts. <laughs> right. so, uh, yeah, it was, uh, uh,
11: was it always going to be acting then for you?
10: I mean I think I had plans maybe to do other things at different times but no it was always the thing that, that kind of interested me the most so uh, I did a part-time course in the gaiety while I was in UCD and, and I was spending more time concentrating on the acting than I was anything else yeah. so uh, yeah it just made sense then that I'd head over and um, identify a drama school in the UK that would have me and um, and it's been good over. to you. Listen, I've been very lucky, you know. There are uh, many who aren't, but uh, so I'm, I'm very thankful. So you got a career and a life partner at it. Indeed, indeed. <laughs> yeah, that old cliche met on, um, met on a set. My, Which set did you meet on? We did a show together called Crossing Lines. We did it for a couple of years. Yeah, we shot a lot of it in Prague and, and the south of France and Paris and um, where else were we? Bulgaria as well. Yeah, it was all over. That was great fun as well. And were you on screen partners? uh not not initially but um well people could people i think kind of <laughs> could tell that there was something going on a chemistry yeah, yeah. there was a chemistry there maybe but uh, they probably knew we'll, about it before we did uh, we, well, <laughs> yeah, it often happens yeah yeah but uh no, was we, it written
11: into the script subsequently no
10: they asked us if we wanted to actually would we would would we mind if they wrote it into the script? But it was it was still fairly, fairly early in our relationship. So we said maybe, maybe not. A hostage to
11: fortune. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> but, uh, so
10: Gabriella is Italian. She is, yeah. She was actually born in America, would you believe. Born in Florida, but uh, moved to Italy when I think she was three years old and uh-huh. grew up in Milan. So she's, she's Italian, really. And you live there now. Yeah, we moved back to Rome kind of, um, well, about a year ago, I suppose, just before I, I went off to do this. So um, yeah, Rome is, Rome is home now. So do you know Richie Sadler? I don't think so. No,
11: he played football for Ireland. He's a pundit now. Oh okay. But if they were ever making a a movie of his life, yeah, he'd be he'd be perfect for it. Yeah, they're, they're not out there. He'd be perfect. Because <laughs> like, when I the, the minute I saw the promo for the gun, yeah. I didn't know Richie Sadler was, a, yeah. was an actress. There well. you go, the <laughs> yeah. Richie Sadler story. Let's, ma- let's make it happen. <laughs> That's the next <laughs> one. Because he does have a story to tell. Well, I won't get into it here, but he does, he does have a story to tell. So Grey's Anatomy, yeah. working on something like that, which is such
10: a big heritage, I suppose, hasn't yeah. it? It's, it's been going for 20 years. Something like that now, yeah, I think so, yeah. Yeah, that was, a, you know, that was a kind of a big one for me, I suppose. Um, and it sort of came out of nowhere, you know.
11: How does something come out of nowhere?
10: Would well, you? I mean, I had no designs on it or, I'd, you know, I hadn't even entered my horizons at all. There'd been no conversations about it. And then I flew over to L.A. just sort of on a on a whim, really, because I, I'd been at home, been, been with Gabriella. She was shooting a show, so I was sort of off. But at the end of that six months, I was going a bit stir-crazy. So I said, I'm going to fly back to L.A. and see if there's anything around. And, uh, you know, just right place, right time. One of those lucky stories. I got off the plane on... On the Friday and met them on the Tuesday and by Thursday that was it. Had the job. So, are they written in a, an Irish doctor? No, they they in the meeting I had with with them they uh, they said they'd been thinking about this character for a while, this MacWidow character, yeah. and um, but they they hadn't f- found quite the right time. I think that they wanted to to explore it, and then they were they were considering the character at this point, and then they met me, and I think. Because I was Irish, they liked that it was something maybe different for the, for that world. So they they just kept him as Irish, and then and we just ran with it, which is great. Well, Bec- it's because it's one less thing to worry about. Yeah, exactly. Isn't it? Yeah, yeah. You can just focus on, uh, on the, the relationships acting. then and the acting rather than thinking about an accent. But you know, an accent's always fun to do as well. But it it takes more preparation time. And going into something that's been around for so long and
11: has this, you know, George yeah. Clooney and all that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
10: Is there a pressure, do you
11: feel, in something like that, more so than something like The Gone, which is the first? Uh, I
10: mean, maybe subconsciously you kind of do, but, but the day-to-day of it is, is, as I've said before, it's just like being on anything, no matter how big or small the set is. I'm I'm there and I'm trying to connect with the other, the other mm. actor and make a decent scene, but the, all the other stuff, the... The size or scope of the the show, how far it reaches, is sort of beyond my, certainly beyond my control. So I just sort of let it go, and then whatever happens, happens. I
11: was reading an interview you did, and you're saying it was odd because uh, because most of the actors are based in LA, yeah. and housed Housing LA, yeah. It was like a nine to
10: five for them, so they yeah they just went home. Yeah, yeah. Because you know when you go on location, like on this, for instance, in you're New Zealand, of, yeah, yeah, you're all sort of bundled together, and you're all away from your families, and you and you. You're able to, I don't know, bond. I suppose in a different way because you're all in the same, in the same situation. But there, yeah, you, I mean, me too. You know, my family had we'd all moved to LA, and and you just you shoot during the day, and then you go home, and depending on what time it is, you either do the school run or you're cooking dinner or whatever, <laughs> and then you're back in the next day, and it, you know, from the outside maybe it, does, it seems. Glamorous maybe because it's a big TV show but uh, really it it just becomes for everybody. I think because a lot of those actors have been on it for so long as well they're so accustomed to getting in and getting out You and that that was it.
0: Actor Richard Flood talking about his time on Grey's Anatomy which did not feature George Clooney by the way, that was ER and his new crime drama The Gone which starts this Sunday evening on our TE1. There's a new sci-fi movie on the way. It's called Faux and it stars our own Saoirse Ronan and Paul Meskel. It's based on a book by Ian Reid who also co-wrote the screenplay and Ian spoke this morning to Oliver Callan.
4: So it's called Faux. Uh, Bring us, Ian, if you could, to the year 2065, isn't it? Where are we on earth? What's happening outside the home of this couple and what's going on inside?
12: Yeah, I mean, the story takes place in the near future in America um, and what's happening outside of the world is obviously uh, theoretical at this point. It's a projection. We're, we're trying to imagine maybe what the world might be like, and in this case, in the film, um, there's, there's a lot of uh, corporate takeover. You know? uh, there, there isn't any sort of family farming anymore. It's all done in these massive factory farms, um, and, and climate change has advanced. Um, you know, the, the earth is suffering and, and, and is desiccated, and people are leaving rural areas and congregating in cities. Um, and what's happening inside this farmhouse uh, is is where Junior and Hen live, and it's uh, it's the family house that has been in Junior's family for a long time. And what's happening in the house, I think, is sort of reflected visually in the land around the farm and what's happening. Um, the, the relationship is 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 affected. Um, by mm-hmm. Junior and how he perceives the relationship. It's something that he, uh, in his mind, is sort of he's been married and and that is is done now. He doesn't really have to think about that. He, he has lost some curiosity, some wonder. Um, and I think when you do that, when you take something like that for granted, you risk losing it. Uh, and, you know, I think that's true with with the natural world and that's certainly true with interpersonal Relation relationships in, in our lives. If 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 we're not active, if we're not proactive, to maintain them and to maintain a level of excitement and curiosity for the other person, and a and a willingness to potentially change and adapt, I I think them, it's it's lesser than it could be, and we absolutely risk losing that.
4: And so, Junior, he's kind of shook out of his stupor a bit, isn't he, by the the visitor that arrives?
12: He is. You know, I think they both are, and and that was the very beginning the impetus of the story for me when I started writing you know I I don't ever outline a story that's that I I don't think I would be able to do that so I really start with something simple an idea one question or a character an image maybe I'd always wanted to somehow write about space um, include that in one of my my books you know my brother Works. he's a scientist yes. and he's he had spent some time working with NASA and, you know, he's done a lot of work in, in that field. So uh, I, I always knew I could use him as a resource potentially if I was gonna write about space and that it would be authentic, you know, cause he's ruined movies for me. Really? Okay. Oh, early on, you know, we'll be sitting in a movie and, you know, five or 10 minutes, you know, he's leaning over and saying like, oh, it would never happen like this actually. <laughs> and so I thought, you yeah, know, that's interesting. If I ever do wanna write about it, I have, and I would always, you know, ask him questions, even outside of writing about space. And he would, he he would always talk about how our relationship to space as humans was going to change drastically over the next coming years, the next few decades. And I found that interesting. And it was the same with, you know, thinking about AI, how our relationship to AI was going to change. And, you know, this is going back to around 2014, when I first started writing the book. So all those things were in my mind, I just didn't know how I was going to include them in the story until I started writing it. And the more I wrote it, these things came into the story, the the idea of potentially space travel, the AI element. And the more I got into the story, the deeper I got, the more I realized that really what I was writing about was, was a relationship, you know, and a mm. certain kind of relationship. And that was the main, that was the meat of the story. The other things were just almost narrative techniques. Uh, and by but the way,
4: there, is the space element, is that, is that kind of a scary thing or is it going to be our potential savior from a dying earth as it's sort of uh, uh,
12: figured I here? I mean, you know, that's a, that's a very good question. It's a, it's a big question. And I, I, I think it would be a similar answer if we were talking about AI, you know, too. Yes. AI and space, both things that, to my mind, are not easy answers and they're not um, one way or the other, uh, either all good or all bad. You know, I think sometimes that, you know, you see, especially with AI, you see it sometimes depicted in, 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 you know, media as, as it's, it's going to be killing machines or in ways that to me, again, seem, they don't seem accurate or realistic in a, in a way. Or the and, end of
4: reality or our concept, yeah, uh, yeah. grasp of reality. No,
12: exactly. And and to me, what's interesting is the pace at which the, the technology has developed. I think that has outpaced certainly my expectation and it's 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 very difficult to predict how that will continue to advance i mean i think the one thing we can all under, understand pretty clearly is that the technology is now here and is changing rapidly and is going to affect all of our lives you know in, mm-hmm. in in profound ways that we don't know yet um but even just our day-to-day lives in the last number of years have been drastically affected by technology um you know just it's, it's it, as anecdotally, I think we can all understand, you know, you go out to a restaurant now, uh, how many people, you know, two people sitting together are on their phone? Or, you know, if someone, if there are two people, that someone gets up to go to the bathroom, they're immediately checking their phone or, you know, standing in line at the shop. And so we're, we're already engaging, we're, we're already drawn to technology in this way, in this very intimate way. And that's affecting the way we're living our lives. It's affecting our relationships. And to me that's as a writer that's very interesting it's 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 scary it's compelling um it's all those things but it certainly isn't anything that I feel comfortable providing answers for you know and and (laughs) it's 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 more about generating discussion and and I feel like novels and films are a good ground for discussion to me that's sort of what they are more than anything is Mm. is feeling like You, you know we're having with a reader or a viewer, I feel like I'm having a discussion with, with them when they engage with the material.
0: Ian Reid, author of the novel Foe, and co-writer of the screenplay for the film adaptation, which stars Sir Ronan and Paul Meskell. Ian was talking this morning to Oliver Callan, and Foe hits our cinema screens this Friday. Finally on this edition of Playback Daily, Cattle. They're endlessly fascinating, aren't they? Well, they are, in the opinion of Eamon O'Connell, also known as the Moo Vet.
5: Get it? And Eamon talked cows with Claire Byrne this morning. So, cattle um, are curious. What, do we know why they're curious?
3: Well, they're creatures of habit, Claire, So, they spend a lot of their time just around the fields, in their paddocks, minding their own business, and they just like having a routine. So, when something new comes into their environment... They really want to investigate it, so yeah. I suppose they're they're not bored. But if something new comes in, they're really really keen to see what it is.
5: Mm-hmm. And they'll do that by having a sniff and possibly a chew.
3: Well, they will. Yeah, I suppose they don't have hands like we have to pick stuff up. So <laughs> the only way they can operate is they is they pick something up in their mouth and they have a smell of it and they have a chew of it and see what it see what it's going to do. Yeah. And
5: you were writing about this recently. Uh, you were called out to a farmer. It was the morning of the All Ireland hurling final. So what was wrong with the the animal?
3: Yeah, the farmer called me. I was just having the breakfast and he said she, the offending animal, the heifer in question, had a swelling on the side of her jaw and he was a bit concerned because she didn't seem to be able to eat and she wasn't able to able to chew her food properly. So he wanted me out to have a look and see what the problem was.
5: Mm-hmm. And what happened then?
3: Well, when I got out there... Obviously, you have a couple of things in your mind from when you're a vet, what might be wrong. I was wondering, was it going to be an abscess on her tooth? Or they have a condition called timber tongue where their their tongue gets swollen from an infection and gets get really hard to chew when they have a swelling on their jaw. So I kind of presumed it was going to be one of those two things. But when we got there, to give the farmer credit, he had the, the animal restrained in the crush. And we went and we had a look in her mouth. And um, I suppose as soon as I had a look in her mouth, I realised that it was none of the things I thought of. I could see the, the slitter poking out from the back of her from the back of her teeth where it was stuck.
5: Oh, so she had picked up a slitter and tried to have a a chew of it and it got stuck.
3: Yeah, I suppose what happens with cows or animals is when they pick up something, they don't really have the the response to spit it out. So they kind of keep chewing until it's either gone or they've swallowed it. But in this case, she tried to chew and it just popped between her her teeth and her jaw, and or her teeth and her gum, should I say, and just stuck there right at the back of her mouth, sat into the little pocket, and she couldn't get rid of it. So she was constantly trying to chew and lick it out, but she couldn't. Okay. Couldn't dislodge the. And
5: could you get the hand? <laughs> could, could you get the hand in to try and pull that out, or is that something that's too dangerous to do?
3: Well, we have we have a piece of gear, it's a small little thing called a drink water gag, I suppose if you can imagine, it, it's like your hand if you put, you've got four fingers, you put two together and two together, stick them together You can, it's a metal object that kind of forms like that and you put it into their mouth that keeps their teeth upper and lower separated because the force of a cow chewing would definitely take your fingers off mm-hmm. <laughs> nice and nice and easy. So okay, we so just pop that into their mouth and they can't they can't close their jaw down so it makes it easy for us to examine what's going on.
5: So that meant you could safely dislodge this litter or was that just to have more of a look to see how, how much it was It was, was to large? have a
3: look first and to be honest it was easy enough to dislodge it then because it, it was wedged in there but it wasn't it wasn't jammed so it was once I got my fingers on it a little bit of a, a pry and it popped out. Mm-hmm. But yeah you definitely discourage anybody without if they don't have one of those gags definitely wouldn't be putting my fingers in there to To see, or you could be minus one nice and easy. So when
5: you managed to get the slither out then was there any other damage?
3: No, it was almost like you click your fingers and she was back to normal and you could see she was suddenly relieved and she had a little bit of a lick and she felt an awful lot better about herself straight away. There was no damage thankfully and even the slither wasn't too damaged. I think the kids were Taking it off to have a poker hunting in later on.
5: So she hadn't even had a chew on it before it got lodged. Not really, one or
3: two, one or two attempts, I think, and it just got to wedged in there. Yeah.
5: Now, um, is that is that common that you'd have the the slithers getting? Because I'd imagine there's a fair few of them where you are in Tip.
3: There is, yeah, there's, yeah, they're more they're more hurling oriented than football oriented. Even the farmer said to me, he goes, "Oh, thank God it wasn't the football." And <laughs> and uh, his opinion is footballers or what do you say? Footballers for hurlers of bad eyesight, so that's how they that's how they view football <laughs> in, fair, no. in Tipperary. They're more of a hurling county, yeah. But, 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 no, but they, they do chew anything they will find. They'll chew, yeah.
5: So. You had another incident of cattle chewing on things, and you called to check on a weanling that looked off color, like literally off color.
3: Yeah, um, this particular animal, he was in a group and to give credit to the farmers, they're very quick to pick to pick up on animals not thriving within a group. So usually this time of year, you'd have younger animals that would that have a nice slick coat, um, especially the blacker animals, you'd see a nice sheen on their coat. And he just picked out this guy as he was gone a little bit off colour. So they go, if, if they're falling behind or there's something holding them back they and often the black-coated animals will go a little brown in, in their coat, but just because they won't be getting the same level of vitamins and minerals into their system that they should be. So he picked this animal out as has been maybe slightly underweight with a with a browny tinge on its coat. Um, now, we didn't expect to find, and uh, as soon as I examined it, we usually start with an exam from, from their nose and work your way back. That's kind of how we work. So, But I actually cut my thumb on a little bit of wire that was sticking out of this poor animal's nose. He, he'd obviously picked it up and tried to chew it and it had pierced right up through his nostril and was poking out the top of his nose. Oh, and, um God. He obviously couldn't dislodge it. Now, thankfully, it was easy enough to get that out, and again, it felt an awful lot better. But I suppose it just goes to show any any weird thing at all that cattle come across, they'll they'll pick mm. it up and they'll chew on it.
5: Because I would imagine if you see an animal that isn't thriving like that, you think about things like worms and and um, parasites.
3: Oh, the first, that's the first protocol. You'd almost say, okay, I, I'd be asking the questions as we're as we're walking around. Have you treated them for parasites? Have they been wormed? What's their diet like? Uh, look, you certainly don't expect to find a wire sticking out at the top of his nose as, a first, as mm-hmm. a first instance. you know.
5: So you think what happened was that he had bitten through the wire and it went up through the roof of his mouth?
3: Yeah, he just picked up this little bit of wire I suppose it was a couple of inches long probably just picked it up out of boredom in the paddock found it there beside a, probably beside a fencing post I'd imagine because sometimes when farmers are fencing they cut the ends off the wire to tighten it up and probably just lost it or didn't pick it up so the, the bullock found it and he picked it up for a chew and really unluckily it just turned on its edge and when he the force of him chewing down, it pierced it out through the roof of his mouth. Yeah.
5: Oh, and what damage did that do? Yeah. He had a, a cut on the tongue as well.
3: He had a cut on his tongue and he had a cut on the roof of his mouth and obviously where it had gone through. But animals are cows in particular and weanings are really, really good to heal. So we gave him some local anaesthetic around it and we gave him some sedative to take it out. And within two or three days, like you'd be amazed at the difference. He was back eating, back feeling a lot better. So they are, once you, once you can figure out what's wrong, cattle in, in general are pretty good to, to recover.
5: They heal quickly, do they?
3: They do, definitely.
0: But which ones are small and which ones are far away? Eamon O'Connell, also known as the Moo Vet, talking the care of cattle with Claire Byrne this morning. And that's all I have for you on this edition of Playback Daily. The programme was compiled, written and edited by me, Neil O'Shuradon. Don't forget you can listen back to all the programmes featured on Playback Daily on the RTE radio app. Until the next time, thank you for listening and good luck.